What a great prayer. What a great prayer. Speak, O Lord, till your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. I trust that that is your passion, that that is your strong desire, and that uh, we have readied our hearts to receive what God has for us this morning. It's a delight to be able to be with you this morning. Uh, I know most of you, but many of you are new to me and I to you, and it's exciting to see that, the growth of Christ Church here at Bethany Community. We've been praying for you uh, during the time that uh, since I've been here, much has changed. It's been fun to see again the, the uh, new folks that God has added to Bethany Community Church. In that time also, uh, Bethany Baptist has just entered into a new, uh, new building that uh, God's provided for us just west of the Grand Prairie Mall, about a mile and a half west there and that's been a great great joy for us we kind of have some room where we can stop and talk to each other in the hall now without feeling like we're in someone's way and that's been fun to see how the body has been able to minister to itself in a new way and and how God's using that and so we encourage you and and solicit your prayers on our behalf in this new chapter and and uh, it's fun to be able to work together as a fellowship of churches so we have three churches tied together, Living Hope Community Church in Bartonville, and, and they've, uh, this past year, got into a new building, and, and God's doing great work there in Bartonville, and then, of course, here in Washington and Peoria, and continue to pray as we think about where God would have us to plant our next church. We believe that uh, God's glory is, is best expressed as churches get established and start and do new work in, in the community in which God plants them, and so pray for us for God's direction. Um, you have a great staff. It's so wonderful that uh, there's such a deep friendship between our staff and, and your staff. We've had recently a, uh, a pastor's conference in which we uh, were able to get together for some spiritual enrichment, but also some fun. Your, your uh, staff was actually involved and led the uh, sort of the uh, schedule this past year. Each year we take turns and and so uh, I, I think you'd appreciate knowing that this is the first year as your staff led the schedule and the activities that uh, all of us had to buy new Nerf guns. So uh, now we have Nerf guns and, and we know how to use them thanks to the staff at Bethany Community Church in Washington. Well, we're going to be in James chapter 3 today, and so if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn to James 3. We're going to be looking at the first 12 verses the message is titled Taming the Tongue. It's a message that all of us need all the time. Uh, James really is a book that gives to us uh, various requirements, various standards of evaluation, whereby we can discern whether or not our faith is living or our faith is dead. And so all throughout, James gives us measures, ways that we can evaluate whether or not our faith is of the living type, which saves, which delivers us from our sin, which connects us to God's grace, and which provides for us an inheritance in heaven, or whether it's dead. And that's a very real possibility. And in God's Word, He says, make sure that you know what kind of faith you possess. And the entire letter of James is written for that purpose. And today we look at one of those tests, one of those evaluations, and it's on the basis of how we speak, what we say. So this is not just a morality tale, hey, we need to clean up our language, 
But this is a test to say, if you have been transformed by God's grace, then it will be reflected in the way you speak. And if it's not reflected in the way you speak, if there's not something substantively different, qualitatively different from the believer's speech than from the unbeliever's speech, then the believer ought to wonder, do I really have living faith or is my faith dead? So let's stand as we read the scripture today, James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Bethany Baptist is following Bethany Community in uh, uh, the version of the Bible that uh, we use now. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grape vine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. May God encourage us through His Word today. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are thankful that you have given us grace to know you. And Father, I would pray that you would care for your people here at Bethany Community. I, I pray, Father, that they would draw near to you daily, that their faith would not be of the Sunday morning variety, but that their faith would be 24 hours a day, seven days a week, that they would live for you not just today, but every day throughout the rest of their lives, all the way until they breathe their last here on this earth. Father, I pray you'd help us. We need your grace so that we can persevere against trials and against the temptations that wage war against our soul. And today we think specifically of the temptations that the Satan brings to us. He is the father of lies. He is a slanderer. His mouth is full of cursing and he wants to teach us his language. And so, Father, help us to consider how we use words. Not just on Sunday morning when we pray and when we sing and when we teach or preach or fellowship with other believers, but Lord, every moment of every day in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in the workplace, wherever it might be, that the words of our mouth, the meditations of our heart would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our, our rock and our redeemer. So Father, teach us today. We are needy people and we open up our hands like beggars wanting bread, needing bread. 
feed us, O oh God, so that our lives might be changed. We do not wish to, to leave any Sunday morning unchanged. By your grace, O oh God, minister to our hearts. For those who do not know you, I pray, Father, that you would awaken their hearts to your grace and to your truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, in 1987, as Kimberly and I drove to Texas to begin our life together in Dallas as a married couple, we were turning channels on the radio to find out some music that we would enjoy listening to along the way. The further south that we drove, however, one genre of music so dominated the airwaves so that there were not very many stations that were not wholly committed to it. I looked over at Kimberly as we were listening to the music coming from these radio stations, and I said, well, I know one thing. I will never acquire a taste for country music. I was adamant, almost angry. <laughs> well, over the next six years of living in Texas, I inexplicably warmed to some of it. I came to enjoy particularly some of the ballads that that some of the songs were about and told. While most of those songs are not worthy, a few of them, however, are filled with grace. One recent ballad that I found insightful is one sung by Rodney Atkins, a song entitled, Watching You. Read some of the lyrics to you. Driving through town, just my boy and me, with a happy meal in his booster seat, knowing that he couldn't have the toy till his nuggets were gone. A green light turned straight to red. I hit my brakes and mumbled under my breath. His fries went a fly and his orange drink covered his lap. Well, then my four-year-old said a four-letter word. It started with S, and I was concerned. So I said, son, now where'd you learn to talk like that? He said, I've been watching you, Dad. Ain't that cool? I'm your buckaroo. I want to be like you and eat all my food and grow as tall as you are. You got cowboy boots and camo pants. Yeah, we're just alike. Hey, ain't we, Dad? So I want to do everything you do. So I've been watching you. We got back home, and I went to the barn. I bowed my head, and I prayed real hard. I said, Lord, please help me help my stupid self. Well, this dad in that song recognized that his son's imitation of his cursing was not cute. It wasn't the adorable mutterings of a little four-year-old, but it was a very serious problem. This dad was humbled by the thought, by the realization that he had taught his son to use his mouth for sin rather than for righteousness. This dad recognized that he couldn't be his own savior, and so he went to the barn and he got down on his knees. He knew that the pull of corrupt language was stupid and yet was so strong that he couldn't help his own self, that he needed to start with God and God's sanctifying grace. He needed to pray and ask God to rescue him. And that's where we need to start today. Lord, please help me help my stupid self. We open our Bibles to James chapter 3 to talk about the way we use our tongues, how we speak. The problem James addresses is this, who can control their tongues? Who can? James encourages us by telling believers that by God's grace, by God's grace alone, 
it's possible for us to use our tongues for the glory of God, to do so consistently, to do so as a matter of lifestyle. But we can't be passive in our approach. We have to be active. We have to head straight into this war against our own flesh. It's a very serious matter. James has been talking about the difference between living faith and dead faith. A living faith that transforms a person's life versus a dead faith that leaves a person unchanged. A living faith that rescues a person from God's judgment and delivers him then into the hands of God to have a home in heaven, to have a right relationship with God forever and ever versus a dead faith that is useless. It does really nothing for the person, nothing whatsoever, not in the present not in the future, not in eternity to come. It's a very serious issue. James has just taught in chapter 2 on the subject of faith and works and how they're connected to each other. And today, in James 3, James discusses the issue of faith and words. Faith and words. James follows Jesus in his teaching that our words reveal what is in our hearts. Remember from Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says to the Pharisees, You brood of vipers! How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. Jesus says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word that they speak. Now that's sobering, isn't it? That on the day of judgment, we stand before God, people will give an account To the holy God for every careless word that they speak. That's Jesus' teaching. And then Jesus says this. For by your words you will be justified. And by your words you will be condemned. Wow. Think about that for a moment. By your words you will be justified. And by your words you will be condemned. Jesus' teaching that our final destiny will be determined on the basis of the way we use our words, the way we speak. Someone says, wait a minute, how is that? Aren't we justified on the basis of our faith in Jesus as our Savior? Yes, absolutely, certainly yes, a hundred times yes. The gospel is so clear throughout the New Testament that a person is justified, accepted by God on the basis of their faith in Jesus. But on the day of judgment, Our words will be a witness either for our defense or for our condemnation. For our words will reveal what kind of faith we possess. Whether that faith is saving or whether that faith is useless, dead. God keeps a record of all of our words. And that record will either reveal true living faith or it will reveal a faith that's dead. Remember what James says in chapter 1, verse 26. James says, if anyone thinks his religion is worthless, excuse me, if anyone thinks he is religious, but doesn't bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart, and his religion is what? Worthless, he says. You see, if we have a new heart, if we have been born again, if we have been regenerate, then we have a new way of speaking, for everything about us has been changed. Nothing reveals a regenerate heart like a sanctified tongue. And nothing reveals a rebellious heart, a heart that is yet unregenerate like a sinful tongue. Today in James 3, verses 1 through 12, James presents to us four specific powers of the tongue. 
Those four powers are first the power to indict us. Secondly is the power to direct us. Third is the power to harm us. And fourth is the power to bless others. So the power to indict us, the power to direct us, the power to harm others, and the power to bless others. Now, as we look at these four powers, they ought to motivate us to become active in our concern for our own speech, the way we use these tongues of ours. And we recognize that, these, that this tongue of ours has such great power to influence our lives and the lives of others around us. You know, uh, these four powers give us strong motivation to care about what we say and how we say it. David, in the Old Testament, was so deeply concerned about how he used his tongue that he pleaded with God in Psalm 141. He says, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. I wonder if our passion for the proper use of our tongue is as great as David's. If we don't pray to God and say, God, set a guard over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. I can't trust myself. Please help me. Help my stupid self, Lord. I need you. The first power we're going to look at is the power to indict us. Look at verse 1 of James 3. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a stricter judgment. Now, James begins his discourse on the tongue by addressing teachers. Teachers use their tongues all the time to fulfill God's ministry in their lives. And teachers particularly have to be careful about the way they use their tongues. For teachers represent God to people. They stand up to communicate God's message to God's people. A teacher can't merely get up on a Sunday morning and start spouting out whatever ideas happen to be on their mind that day. Ideas about the world, about life, about sin, about God, whatever happens to come to their thoughts. No, as teachers, we are to be God's echoes. That's our calling. Merely an echo. We don't create the message. We don't think hard to invent the message. We merely repeat the message. So a boy yells into a canyon, and what he hears coming back to him is exactly what he yelled. The stone walls of the canyon, they have no authority to echo back some new and improved idea. They're just simply instruments there for the boy to hear his voice coming back at him. Human teachers, whether it be Sunday school teachers or pastors, elders, We are God's echoes. God speaks. And we have no more authority to change and improve the message, to add to it or subtract from it, than that stone wall of a canyon has to change and improve the message that the boy yelled into the canyon. Whatever God speaks, that is what we are to communicate. What a privilege it is to be a reverberation of God, to be his echo. What an honor. Now, God gives teachers to the church in Ephesians chapter 4, and I know you studied through that great book. You learn that God gave some to be apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers so that the saints might be equipped for the, so that they might do the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. So God gives teachers to the church as treasures, as precious gifts to the church to help the church minister and to be built up. 
So James is not disparaging the role of the teacher when he writes these words in verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers. In fact, he acknowledges that he himself is in that group. He says, for you know that we who teach will be judged. So he says, I'm a teacher. He's not denigrating the role of the teacher. He says, I'm a teacher. I understand the importance of the role of teachers in the church. But what he is saying is be cautious before you grab hold of that responsibility. You know, it's a very good thing to want to become a teacher of God's word, to have that desire in your heart. But James' point is not many of you should become teachers at this point. Evidently, most of the people whom James is writing to were not yet ready in their walk with Christ to take on the greater accountability that the teaching office places upon a person. Perhaps they enjoyed the attention of being a teacher, or the public praise, or the acclaim that a teacher might receive. But James says you're not yet spiritually ready for that role, and until you are spiritually ready for that role, don't grab hold of it. James is not discouraging those who are biblically qualified from teaching. He's urging teachers to evaluate your credentials. The teaching position can be considered one of prestige and power by many, and James is saying don't accept a teaching ministry in the church until you understand the spiritual seriousness involved in that endeavor. Don't rush into it. Take hold of this office only after you've considered the greater accountability that God will place upon your life. For woe to the person who teaches others and then causes them to stumble. Causes them to stumble either by failing as an example of godliness or by failing as an ambassador of God's truth. Teachers in the church don't merely pass on information. We are shepherds. We shepherd people in the way they live, in the way they relate to each other, in the way they serve God, in the way they reach out into their community with the gospel. That's what we are. We're not just merely dispensers of specific information. We are to be shepherds. And think of the damage that an unprepared, confused, corrupt, or proud shepherd can make on the precious lambs within Christ's church. Jesus warns teachers, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown to the bottom of the sea. This is what James meant by a stricter judgment. He says, if you take on the role of a teacher and your life is not mature, your, your walk with Christ has not been solidified, strengthened, and your understanding of God's Word has, has not uh, been made complete, you could cause one of these little ones to stumble and and that would be the worst thing of all to happen. It would be better for you to have a heavy millstone hung around your neck and just thrown in the bottom of the sea. So James is saying, be careful before you become a teacher. You know, the Apostle Paul is saying the same thing to Timothy when he says, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. You know, it's wise for a teacher to hesitate before grabbing hold of the teaching office. We have to be confident that we've studied God's Word enough so that we can rightly divide it, so that we can understand it and be able to present it to others. We have to be confident that God's grace has been strongly work at work in us for a long enough time that, that we're not prone to, to uh, just following after sin, following after and running after a rebellious notion. 
When we are, we are asked to teach, whether you're asked to teach a Sunday school class or a Bible study or, or even considering uh, vocational ministry, ask yourself two questions. Do I really know what the Bible says regarding sin, regarding God, regarding salvation, and regarding sanctification? Do I know what the Bible says so that I'm able to give to others the right truth so that they might live their lives for God's glory? And secondly, am I willing to die for Jesus if he asked me to? And if you're not willing to say yes to either of those questions, don't take on the mantle of teaching. Say, wait, I need, to, I need to grow before I become a Sunday school teacher or a youth leader or an elder or a pastor. We kind of joked in seminary that uh, a pastor needed to be ready to preach, pray, or die at a moment's notice. And really that's true though, a teacher should be able to preach, to teach at any opportunity. Why? Because we've studied the Bible through. That doesn't mean at any moment we could just get up and, and give a perfectly illustrated with an organized outline message, but it means we'd be able to take up the scriptures and say, here, here, let me encourage you with the Word of God. A teacher should be able to pray at a moment's notice because, because that person is walking in fellowship with God daily. They know God personally and intimately. And a teacher should be able to die for Christ at any moment that God would ask them to because they love Jesus dearly and they know that death means joy in His presence. That's what a teacher knows. James is saying, don't stand up and teach others until you know the Bible, until you've grown in faith and obedience. The second power of the tongue, the power not only to indict us, but also to direct us. Look at verse 2. For we all stumble in many ways. Let's stop there for a moment. James acknowledges that we all, and he's including himself in this, we all stumble in many ways. He's not saying that teachers are perfect. He's not saying that any believer is perfect. We all stumble in many ways. In 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 36, God's Word says, There is no one who does not sin. It's pretty clear. That is God's evaluation of your life and of my life. There is no one who does not sin. In fact, 1 John chapter 1, verse 10, if we say we've not sinned, we make God to be a liar and his word is not in us. No truth could be more clear in the Bible than the sinfulness of man's heart. Modern man likes to think that his major problems lie in the areas of poverty, lack of education, and political tyranny, or in physical ailments. But the major problem that we face, according to God's word, is, is our own sin. The Bible says that you and I stumble in many ways. That word stumble is present tense. In other words, it's a consistent ongoing problem that we have as we walk throughout this life. We stumble. We trip over God's law. We stagger underneath the weight of God's requirements. We fall down as a result of our own foolishness. We all stumble and we continue to stumble throughout life. James makes this observation. Why? So that we would know we need a Savior. James' message to his people in chapter 3 is not, hey, try harder to use your tongues in a better way. That's not his message. James' message is, you need a Savior. We all stumble in many ways. We need a God who will rescue us from our tongue's proneness toward vile and corrupt speech. We all stumble in many ways. The gospel is not a self-reformation, self-improvement project, but rather the gospel is a message that God in love looked down upon us 
who all stumble in many ways. And he says, this is the people who need the Savior. I'm going to send my own son to live out his life to the fullness of my requirements in human form, to die upon the cross and to raise the third day so that if anyone wants first to be forgiven of their sin and then second to be cleansed of their sin so that they might have the opportunity to live a different kind of life, they could turn to him and find a Savior that they need. And so the first call of God from James chapter 3 is for us to look to Jesus to be our Savior. Have you ever trusted in Jesus as your Savior? And if you've trusted in Jesus as your Savior, do you consider your need for Jesus to save you as much today as you needed Him to save you from your past sins? We need a Savior. There are so many ways that we might sin with our tongues. One pastor comments, the Bible refers directly or indirectly to, and listen to this list, a wicked tongue, a deceitful tongue, a lying tongue, an angry tongue, a bitter tongue, a crafty tongue, a filthy tongue, a perverse tongue, a corrupt tongue, a flattering tongue, a blasphemous tongue, a gossiping tongue, a backbiting tongue, a foolish tongue, a boasting tongue, a murmuring tongue, a complaining tongue, a cursing tongue, a contentious tongue, a sensual tongue, a vile tongue, a tail-bearing tongue, a whispering tongue, and an exaggerating tongue. At the end of the list, this pastor asks, do you see yourself anywhere in this list? Do you? Friends, have you ever asked yourself after saying something that reflects one of those adjectives in that list, why did I just say that? Why did I just say that? Why did I just utter that hurtful word to that person? Why did I just lie instead of telling the truth? Why did I let my mouth participate in some contentious argument? Why did I talk about a coworker behind their back? Why did I gripe and complain? Why did I criticize? Why did I use that curse word? You know, we try to defend ourselves by saying, well, I was not myself when I said those things. Yes, you were. <laughs> you were exactly yourself. <laughs> that's the problem. <laughs> and until we come to realize, that's me. <laughs> I said those things because that's what's in my heart. You know, Jesus tells us that it's out of the heart the mouth speaks. And the Bible tells us that our heart is deceitful above all else. It's deceitful. It wants to make us think that we're really okay when really we're not. And he says it's, Je Jeremiah says it's desperately wicked. If something wicked comes up in our mouth, it's because something wicked is inside of us. Know that to be true. Nothing reveals our sinful condition more than our tongues do. The rest of verse 2, we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. The idea of a perfect man in the Bible is not a life of sinlessness. James has already taken care of that with the first part of the verse. He says, we all stumble in many ways. <laughs> then he goes on to talk about the perfect man. Well, well, what is this perfect man? He's saying it's someone who is complete, spiritually mature. The person who's able to discipline his tongue gives proof of a living faith that's underneath the control of the Holy Spirit, that is being transformed by God, right? The first illustration that James uses then is that of a horse with a bit in its mouth. He uses two illustrations to drive this point home. It's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks, so the tongue becomes an instant expression of the heart. And he says, let me give you two illustrations to prove this, to show this. First in verse 3. 
If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. And the second illustration is that of a ship in a rudder. Look at verse 4. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. Both illustrations teach the exact same truth. James 2 chooses two items that are very small in themselves, yet wield great power to direct, to control. Because he wants us to understand the power of our tongue to control or direct our whole lives. James says the tongue is, is like a bit in the, in, a, in the horse's mouth. The tongue is like a rudder on a ship. It's, it's a small member, yet it directs the course of, of such a, a large being, a large body. Our tongues will either move us toward God, toward His glory, toward worship, or will move us toward sin, toward corruption, toward a denial of God. Both the horse and the ship carry people toward a direction, toward a destination in life. Where the horse goes, the rider goes. Where the ship goes, the people on the ship, the passengers go. James' point is that the tongue carries a person toward a direction, toward a destination in life. We like to shrug our shoulders and say, hey, they're just words. No one was really harmed by them. They're, they're just words. No, they direct the course of an entire life. We will go in the direction, toward the destination that our tongue takes us. This tells me it's worthwhile spending some time thinking about our tongue, becoming active, grabbing hold of God's grace so that our tongues become sanctified. David writes in Psalm 39.1, I will guard my ways that I might not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle. <clears throat> That's a guy who recognizes that he stumbles in many ways, particularly with his tongue, and he can't trust himself. He needs a Savior, but he also is not to be passive. not to say, well, God, that my tongue's yours, and just, just walk away from it. No, he says, by your grace, God, I am going to set a guard over my own mouth, and I'm going to put a muzzle on my tongue, a spiritual muzzle. If we let our tongues loose to do whatever they want to do, then the whole course of our lives will be affected. Again, the heart and the tongue are so connected that we cannot corrupt the one without corrupting the other. Jesus' point in saying it's out of the, out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks is that if you corrupt your heart, you're going to have a corrupt tongue. James' point is, is the same, only turned around. He says, if you let your tongue become corrupt, your heart's going to become corrupt also. Both are true. So he says, watch over your mouth. Put energy to master it. Put time to master it. Both the bit and the rudder must be overcome opposing forces in order to bring order, to bring peace, harmony, joy, stability. A bit is used to submit the horse's wild nature to the rider. The rudder is used to direct a ship contrary to the winds and the waves that push against it. There is this force that uh, the, the Bible calls the flesh, it calls it the world, it calls it the devil itself. These forces are active, pushing us in a direction. The bit, the rudder, the tongue is intended by God to direct us even contrary to those forces. But we need a rider, we need a pilot. Who can ride that horse? Who can pilot that ship? The answer is Jesus. Jesus must be the jockey of our soul. 
Jesus is not to be our co-pilot, as some of the bumper stickers say. He must be the pilot. In other words, there must be a surrender of ourselves to the lordship of Jesus every day. That's the reason why the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12, I appeal to you on the basis of God's mercy, on the basis of what you know God has done for you in Christ. I appeal to you, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. Holy and acceptable to God. This is your reasonable, it's your spiritual act of worship. That's what worship is. It's the surrender of our lives to God every day. Again, in Romans 6, the Apostle Paul is driving this idea home. He says, do not present your members, your eyes, your ears, your mouth, your hands, your feet. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of righteousness. Okay, Satan, okay, world, okay, flesh. Take my members and use them the way you want to. No, he says, don't present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Now, that's our default setting. If we're passive, if we just simply wake up in the morning and do nothing and think about nothing, that's where the members of our own bodies will be used because that's our default setting. That's the reason why the Apostle Paul says, every day present your members of your bodies over to Christ for righteousness sake. Present your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Only when we present the members of our bodies to Christ will we hope to get to the place of joy, of peace, of harmony, of holiness and happiness in God. We cannot be passive in this process. We must continually work to submit our lives to Jesus' rule. That's the focus of the believer's life. My son Alexander actively participates in Campus Crusade at Truman State University. And a number of weeks ago, one male friend from Crusade, we'll call him Frank, used a borrowed cell phone to write a text message to a female friend. So he took the cell phone from another friend and he began to type a text message. Frank thought it would be hilarious to write a text message full of curse words so that the young woman receiving the message on the other end would think that the person who owned the phone sent that message to her. When Alexander found out about the joke, he asked to talk to Frank about it. He tried to convince Frank that a Christian had no business using that kind of language, even in jest. Amazingly, upon being confronted, Frank defended his use of coarse talk, saying that they're just words. Now, Frank is a Bible-believing, evangelical Christian. He is part of the leadership at Campus Crusade. He's one of the good guys, one of the guys you point to and say, hey, that guy is doing, living, living right. We say, hey, they're just words. They don't have any real meaning. They're just in jest. Frank went on to communicate his philosophy of cursing. He agreed that a Christian should not use words in front of unbelievers, like the words in his text, because that would be, he said, quote, a bad witness. But since this this young woman was a Christian, no harm was done, she understood. Now, I use this story to awaken us to the danger of satanic deception regarding the words we speak. You know, we get in a culture, and we begin to get used to certain ways of speaking, whether it's cursing or whether it's lying or whether it's criticizing or whether it's complaining or gossiping, whatever it might be, we get used to that culture. And as Christians, it can even become part of the Christian culture. The friends we hang around, it's okay, it's no big deal. What James is saying, check it against the holiness of God. Check it against the book. Because the way you use your words will determine the direction and the destination of your life. The power to indict us, the power to direct us, now the power to harm others. 
James uses two illustrations to teach us the power of the tongue to damage the lives of people around us. First, he uses the illustration of fire. Look at verses 5 and 6. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. And the tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the whole entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. A little fire can grow to obliterate acres and acres of beautiful forest. Remember Smokey the Bear ad campaigns? Smokey the Bear would point his finger and say, Remember, only you can prevent forest fires. Smokey's urging us to be careful, and James is urging us to be careful. The Holy Spirit through James is saying, Remember, only you can prevent destructive forest fires, fires that would destroy your family, your marriage your church, your community, your workplace. The very end of verse 6 is, and it's set on fire by hell. Underline those words. Those are profound. Satan loves to take our tongues and use them as his instruments for accomplishing his design. Our tongues can devastate a marriage, can ruin a church, can severely injure a little child. Will we let Satan use our tongues to maim and murder, or will we yield our tongues to the master of Jesus? That's the question. Second, James uses the illustration of poison. Look at verses 7 and 8 now. Every kind of beast and bird and reptile to sea can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. Aren't you glad it doesn't say no one can tame the tongue? It says no human being can tame the tongue. That's why, again, James is pointing us back to God. He's so important, he's back to genuine, authentic, living faith in the genuine, authentic, living God. No human being can tame the tongue. Left to ourselves, there's not one of us will be successful with that endeavor. We all need a Savior. He goes on to say this tongue, it's a restless evil. It's full of deadly poison. Full of deadly poison. We need God's grace at work in our lives. Our tongues will inject poison into people's lives. Poison the people whom we love. You know, I I hate that my tongue has been used to inject poison like a cobra biting another person, stinging them with the fire of that that poison. I hate that. I confess that it's been true in my life. I have used my tongue when I was little to inject poison into my parents who loved me and raised me and discipled me and cared for me and fed me and clothed me. I've injected poison in the soul of my wife, my children, my friends, my co-laborers. I hate that fact. I hate it. I've had to seek forgiveness from God. I've had to seek forgiveness from other people for the pain that my words have brought. James says it's a It's full of deadly poison. I'm thankful that God's grace is at work in me so that my tongue is more and more set apart for God's use. I'm thankful that I see Christ working in my soul so that I become more and more like Him. But I need to remember every day my tongue is a deadly poison. It is like a a serpent, a snake. And if I'm not cautious 
it will kill. It will kill joy, it will kill peace, it will kill relationships, it will kill love, it will kill worship. The fourth power we're going to look at here is the power to bless others. Look at verse 9 and following. With this tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. With it, we curse people whom were made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be what ought to be. It ought to be that our tongues become a source of, of fresh water. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? You see, there, for the believers, it's possible for us to be a source of fresh water with our tongues. He says, can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield both fresh and salt water. James uses this illustration to set before us this wonderful possibility that because of the sanctifying grace of God through Jesus Christ, that our tongues can now be a point of refreshment. In fact, that's what God intends for us to be in this world. You know, this is a, a world full of bitterness. And there are people wandering through this world like, like men wandering through a desert. Men and women who are just all on their own, and they're in a desert, and they're parched, and they see an oasis. There's perhaps some hope for me to live. There's some hope for me to give, be given refreshment. And they come over to that oasis, and they take the first little taste, and they find, it's bitter. It will kill me if I drink it. There was such hope there for something good to happen, and that hope was all dashed. When another person, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, another person walks across your path, they very well may have been walking across a huge desert and they are parched. And they meet you and they see an oasis. Here's a believer. Here's a, here's a dear one. Here's one that I could find an oasis, a, a, a source of shade and cool refreshment. James is saying, you know, you, you can be that source of fresh water for other people. And what a joy it is. Two weeks ago, my dad went home to be with the Lord. And uh, it was a time of, of sadness and grief. It was also a time of, of great hopefulness and, and clarity in the promises of God. Furthermore, it was a promise. All through that trial, before my dad died, he was, it took about three and a half weeks in the hospital. And after that trial, to this very present day, of receiving fresh water. You know, trials, they, they bring a, a desert to a person. But how good it's been to come before brothers and sisters, many of you are in this audience, and, and hear you speak to me words of grace, words that bless me. That's what God intends for each one of us. Let's have a vision, a vision to glorify God with our mouths. I didn't finish Rodney Atkins' song at the beginning of this message. Remember how he realized that he had caused his little one to stumble through his own cursing. Here's how that song ends. We got back home and I went to the barn. I bowed my head and I prayed real hard. I said, Lord, please help me help my stupid self. Just the sight of bedtime later that night, turning on my son's Scooby-Doo nightlight. He crawled out of bed and got down on his knees. He closed his little eyes and folded his little hands. He spoke to God like he was talking to a friend. And I said, son, now where'd you learn to pray like that? He said, I've been watching you, Dad. Ain't that cool? I'm your buckaroo. I want to be like you and eat all my food and grow as tall as you are. We like fixing things and holding Mama's hand. Yeah, we're just alike, hey, ain't we, Dad? 
I want to do everything you do, so I've been watching you. And with tears in my eyes, I wrapped him in a hug. I said, my little bear is growing up. And he said, but when I'm big, I'll still know what to do. Because I've been watching you, Dad. Ain't that cool? I'm your buckaroo. I want to be like you. The power of the tongue to bless. Let's pray and let us work by God's grace to be fresh springs of refreshment in a world full of dry bitterness. May God use our tongues for His glory and for the joy of His people everywhere. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I pray, Father, that we would be a people active in our pursuit of holiness, particularly in the way that we speak. And that, Father, uh, be in today that uh, our actions would be different, that we would be conscious in our pursuit of asking you to set a guard over the door of our mouths, that we would lean on your grace, and that we would know that we need you to cleanse us and to deliver us from the power of, of the sin that, that our tongues are prone toward. Father, I pray that you'd watch over those who are here today who do not know Jesus as their Savior, and perhaps are listening to this message and thinking, you know, my, my language, it, it is exactly like the language of this world. And they're wondering, do I have a living faith or is my faith dead? I pray, O oh Father, that you'd be gracious to them and that you would lead them to a faith that's fully alive, a faith that trenuinely connects them to you in a transforming way. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.